Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 454. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalana and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altes, Yukasil ben Leir Rachel and Rachel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todders ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rachel Altes. This week is Gimel Tammuz, the third of Tammuz 29 years ago. The sun stopped. The Rebbe's Neshamit went into another stage. And it has left us all, in many ways, bereft, confused. What should we be doing now? The big question that people ask. We were given a mandate, we were given marching orders, but Gimel Thomas came. So of course we're gonna discuss that, most appropriate especially in the context of Chassidus Applied. This week is also Pasha's Kedach, Shkocha Pratis. Kedach challenged the very concept of a Rebbe when he challenged Moshe and Aaron, why are you leaders? The entire community are sacred and sanctified. And we'll talk about some other relevant matters, both timely connected to, this, to these themes. I thank you for all your questions. They keep coming and I deeply appreciate it. It's what really is the fuel of this entire program that began over 10 years ago. Now, as I said, in episode 454. So, com is a special website we created which is exclusively dedicated to this program and other resources of Chassidus that you can easily access. So check that out. There you'll have a forum we submit any question completely anonymously and confidentially, as well as we'll see the archives of previous programs. They're all time-stamped, which means that you can actually go and don't have to listen to the entire hour. You can listen, and uh, it's by theme, and you can just click and it'll take you straight to the topic you're looking for. You can also search by topic. Okay, so let's go to Gimel Thomas. What are we to make of this day? Very powerful question. The way I've always understood it is that we don't understand it, which means we were not told. There's no sikha, there's no mimer, there's no letter directed that says, this is Gimel Thomas, here's what you should do. We weren't even prepared for it, meaning the Rebbe preparing it. So the way I always saw it was that the Rebbe's plan from the beginning of Deir Ashvi, when the Rebbe assumed leadership in Tavshin Yud, 1950, as the Rebbe said in the first Maimon Baslegani, this is the Deir Ashvi, the last, Deir, the last generation in Golis, the first generation of Gula that will bring down the Shechin, V'shechanti B'Seichem, like Moshe was the seventh generation from Avram, build the Mishkan, the divine presence on this earth, that we will do it in a permanent fashion, the seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe. And that was the, the undercurrent the essential mission of the entire seventh generation, the undercurrent of all the Rebbe's activities and words and teachings. So in the years uh, when we came to 1989, 1990, 1991, Tavshinun, Nun Aleph, Nun we were coming to the climax, we were coming to the, to the final destination to cross the threshold, as the Rebbe said in so many different, in, 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 in so many different certain terms, that the ghoul is already here, all we have to do is open our eyes, we already polished the buttons, the Berurim have been finished. Many different, many different expressions, many different ways of explaining it, that we are now literally the last step of receiving Mashiach and Gula. And then came Chavzayin Adar, 27th of Adar, 1992, Rebbe had a stroke. And then only led to a little more than two years later to Gimel Tammuz. So the fact is, if you were following the Rebbe's trajectory and the Rebbe's teachings, it was very clear we're going to the Gula. So what happened? I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. Where are we supposed to get the answer? The only place it can come from is from above, from the Rebbe himself. The Rebbe did not give us an answer. The only thing you could say is we know what we have to do. 
even if we don't have an answer to that question. But why that had to happen in such a way, the Rebbe did say 11 months to the day before the stroke, before 27th of Adar, on Chavches Nisan Tavshin Nun Aleph, 1991, we're talking now 32 years ago, that I did everything I can, now do what you, can do everything you can. But he didn't say that it's actually going to happen literally. That I'm not going to be here and physically because I did everything I can. So I always envision it. Okay, then we had 11 months to do everything we can. That didn't happen. So came the stroke, and now the Rebbe is watching. And exactly as he said, tragically was fulfilled. I did everything, now do what you, I'm watching. Giving you keiches, I'm giving you strength, I'm blessing, I'm praying for you. And that also didn't bring the goal. So now two years and a few months later comes Gimel Tammuz. So what we're supposed to do, we were told. To say we're confused by what we're supposed to do, absolutely not, because we were given clear orders. Do everything you can to bring the gula. What that means, we have to put our heads together, as the Rebbe himself says in that talk. And I've discussed this many times. The Rebbe said, to learn in Yoni Gula Mashiach, to bring the message to everyone, increasing in acts of goodness and kindness. I see it as a global revolution to reach every possible person on earth with Godliness. Basically, with Chassidus, the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Today, we have all the opportunity to do so with technology. So, that's our job. Is that the only thing? No, there's so many things. But Rambam says every good deed, every good word, every good thought tips the scales. But let's not focus right now what we should be doing, even though that is the punchline. The question here is so, my answer is we don't have an answer. And go a step further. Many times, over the years, the Rebbe would say, why didn't Gula not come? Because there's still one thing to do. Maybe there's this thing, maybe that thing. Then there came a period, again, Nun Nun Aleph, where the Rebbe would answer the question, why did Mashiach Taka not come if everything is ready and all we have to do is open our eyes, the world is ready and so on? So the Rebbe would say, Chab Taka Kasha. I have indeed a question. If the Rebbe could say he had a question, we for sure can say that. And there are many questions. But since when do questions stop us from forging ahead? The Rebbe once said in the Fabrengen, he said, Amuna, an answer doesn't make stronger and a question doesn't weaken. When the Rebbe was asked in Tavshin Yud, Yud Aleph, Yud Aleph, when they were encouraging the Rebbe to become a Rebbe, so, so someone said, what will be with us if you don't become a Rebbe? The Rebbe said, what will be? I have many questions that I don't have answers to. We have a grace Rebbe and he'll take care of it. So the questions should not stop us from moving forward. By so, that's what we were told. So an answer, what to make of this day? You can bring about it and have feelings and all kinds of discussions. But it should only motivate us and propel us to do even more because we were given those keiches. And now, more is dependent upon us. Because Begoli, in a revealed way, it's our arms and legs and our mouthpiece, as the Rebbe said, be my mouthpiece. On Gimel Shvat, Tavshinun Aleph, Tavshinun Beis. That we are now the Zari Bachayim, the children, the students that are supposed to carry the message. So the responsibility is even greater on us. As far as the actual day itself, so I would classify it as a paradox. It's a paradox. What happened the first Gimel Tamas, we know, is the day Vayidim, that Shemesh be given Daim, Daim. When Yeshua says, Shemesh be given then the sun should stop. Then be silent. Because when the sun sings shira, praise, that's what causes it to move. So then be silent. The, the, the sun fell silent. The sun stopped. So Yeshua can continue fighting the battle in daylight. So the sun, which is compared to Pnei Mesha, Pnei Chama, face of Mesha like the face of the sun, the Mesha of every generation. So Gimel Thomas, the sun stopped. And it has a paradox in it. Because on one hand, like I said, we don't understand why and the deeper elements of it. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean the sun is no longer there. As I discussed a number of years ago, discovered a new manuscript from Mitla Rebbe, 
the Schneerson Library in Russia, in Russia where he elaborates on the Geras HaKedosh of Zion, where he says, even when the sun sets, it doesn't disappear. It's shining somewhere else on earth. And it shines to us through the stars. He goes on to elaborate how the sun never sets, really. It sets for the eyes of the people in that part of the world. So Rebbe never leaves. The famous story of the Radatz, Chain. He was the rabbi of Chernigov. So when the Reb Marash was the Stalkus was Yud Gimel Tishrei, right before Sukkot. So then there were, the communications were not like today. So the news took time to get out. The Babish, they knew the sad news. But when it got to Chernigov, it was Hishan uh, Rabbi. So when the Rabdats, Rabdovid Svichem, came to Shul that night for Akofis, Shmini Atzeres, he was told, someone told him, the Rebbe is Avek. The Rebbe left. He fainted. He fainted. They could not, whatever they did, they couldn't revive him. And it was getting dangerous. He was lying there without... Uh... So they finally decided to bring his father. His father was Aperetzchein, famous Chosid Aperetzchein, who they say was the only person who saw six Rebbes in his lifetime. He was a little child. When the Alter Rebbe passed away, he saw the Alter Rebbe as a little child. He saw the Mittler Rebbe, the Samach Tzedek, the Rebbe Marash, the Rebbe Rashab, and he saw the Friedrich Rebbe when the Friedrich Rebbe was a young child. But he was old and ailing, so they carried him to Shul, and he went over to his son who was lying there, faint. And he said, Rebbe gate came on Nishtavek. Rebbe never leaves. So the sun continues to shine, just in a different way, through the stars, through the Zari Bachaim, through the students. Would we prefer that the sun be shining right here, exactly as it was before Gimel Tans, before Chavzayin? Of course. But as I said, it's a paradox. The paradox of life, that there are things we don't understand, but that doesn't mean that in any way their truth is weakened. The Nitzchis, the truth of the Rebbe's of the Rebbe and what the Rebbe represents and Chassidus and Teda, that has not changed in any way. And that's why you talk to see Chabad thriving, continuing growth. It's completely up to us. Is it more challenging? Of course, it was very easy to come run to Simchas Teda, to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Shabbos, or and so on, to be with the Rebbe. It's much easier. But that, but this mission continues. As I said, it's even more, behooves us even more to take a leadership role and initiate. And that's what we were trained to do. So many ways, this is a test of the ultimate test. What will you be doing? And how are you behaving? So that's just a general overview. But a few other questions that came in regarding that. So let's address them. 29 years. How much longer? Back to the same answer. I don't have an answer to that. We were told 29 years ago, 31 years ago, that it would be immediate. Take it from Miyad Mamish. We spoke about that sense of urgency. So that sense of urgency continues. The fact that it took 29 years, yes, it gives a lot of food to the Yetzirah to challenge and be skeptical and cynical and so on. But that's part of the challenge. You can't, we can't succumb to that. We still have to look at it fresh, every day. What am I doing today? Personally, I don't let that question bother me. I say, what am I doing? 29 years, it means I didn't do what I had to do. I didn't do enough. That is the way we've been trained. That's the only way I think we can approach it. Everything else just becomes depressing and becomes, you throw up your hands and you become paralyzed, resigned. So the question has to be on us. What God does, what the Rebbe does, is they know what they're doing. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about us. So we have a job to do. I can say without hesitation, there are millions, billions of people out there that have not yet heard Chassidus in a way that they can relate to, empowering them. So I know there's work to be done. Is it dependent on reaching everyone? No. But to say there's no work to be done is also not correct. The famous answer that the Rebbe would quote from the Friedrich Rebbe. On one hand, we talk about Mashiach as immediacy. We're ready to go to Gula any second. And then we're told to build our lives, to build Mezdis organizations, to build buildings, not just rent or lease. If Gula's about to come, 
Why are we creating permanent plans as if they're permanent plans? Seems like a contradiction. So the Friedrich Rebbe answered, the same thing happened in the Midbar when the Jews were traveling in the wilderness. So any, every one of the 42 Masois, 42 travels, it says they stopped and they unpacked the Mishkan and they erected it anew, the sanctuary. And they did this many, all the times throughout the journeys. Why? Because Al Pi Hashem Yachnu, Al Pi Hashem Yisu. Everything was by the word of God. When God says Yachnu, now we rest, even if it's one day, Keman Dami says the Gemara. It's as if it's permanent, because the Abish is permanent. It's one day. But right now, when you're here, you have to be here completely, like a Pnimi. Where you are, you have to be complete. Either the next day you may be traveling. Yeah, but now you have to do focus on what you have to do now. And then Then Hashem says to move, and then that's the, the, the mission. So on one hand, we're here right now. We have to do everything possible to transform this world, including building, including owning buildings. A, a second later, Mashiach can come, and then all these shuls and all the Batakinesis will go to Israel, as the Gemara says. Is it a paradox yet? Yeah. The Rebbe a number of times said, and that's what a Jew is, is a, is a walking paradox. So the same thing is here, 29 years, yes. When you think of it that way, it sounds it's going to change. What has to change is us, our attitude, our commitment, and our activities. And look at it like a business. If it's your business, you don't say, oh, 29 years, I haven't been as successful as I'd like to be. What do you do? Let's make new initiatives. Let's try new things, new opportunities, new ways. In this case, nothing new in the sense of that's not al pitera halacha or chsidis, God forbid, but new initiatives, new energy, new reach. And I can tell you, again, on a personal note, I have seen personally tremendous growth, especially just recently, skyrocketing growth. Still more to do. We don't ever rest on our laurels, and we don't just look at the past, to look ahead. And the Rebbe was always looking ahead. The head means toward what the ultimate destination is. And that's how a leader thinks. A leader does not think, oh, what's going to be, or what happened? What do I do now to get where we have to get to? Next question. If a shepherd never deserts his flock, how do we explain Gimel Tamus? Or should we not bother trying to find a reason and explain, but rather spend our time doing the best we can to honor the Rebbe by learning his teachings and applying them in our lives and doing the best we can to bring Mashiach? Well, back to the question. The answer here, I wouldn't say we don't know. We don't know what Gimel Tammuz is, but to say that Loyazib uh, Saint Marisa is the expression. A shepherd does not forsake his flock. The Rebbe does not forsake his flock. It says in the Gebarah about Moshe, Ma l'halon eimed Meshamish, avkanu eimed Meshamish. Just as he then stood and served, so too now he stands and serves. So he did not forsake his flock. The sun continues to shine. Perhaps not in a way that we see, but it's shining. The fact that we have life, the fact that we have the kreches, the strengths, we have the directives of the Rebbe that live on. And Mazari Bechaim, we have disciples, people who are empowered. This is the Rebbe's Kechis, the Teres Kechis, Hashem's Kechis. So there's no forsaking the flock, God forbid. To explain Gimel Tamas, that part of the question, I go back, I don't have an, an answer. The only thing, again, not to explain it, is to say that perhaps sometimes the father conceals himself in order that we should use our ingenuity and our our initiative, our as we've been learning in the previous parashas, our initiative, and to do that, sometimes the strengths that come from above are concealed for a short time. They're not truly not there. They're there entirely. But they're concealed to compel us to have to do what we have to do. And that Moshe is the Moshe from the Magid. Even though the Rebbe, Yitru Bishvat Tov Shalamites, did say, before the Shir, how long can the father keep concealed? And it's not the child's fault. The father's concealed himself so well. But still, there is a concealment. And the second half of your statement is definitely right. You can ask the question and understand that 
the Zoya, the shepherd, does not forsake his flock. But yes, the focus has to be and spend our time on how do we honor the Rebbe, how do we continue to perpetuate the work. That's no question about it. And the Jews have had challenges throughout history. The key was to move forward. Not to get stuck in philosophical arguments. And which way? Move forward, forge ahead. That doesn't mean we're not intelligent people. We understand the challenges. But the bottom line is action-oriented. And each one of us, Gimel Tammuz, I would call it a day of accountability. To ask yourself, a day of introspection. What are you doing to fulfill the prime directive? What have you done? What will you be doing? What will you do the coming days and year that haven't been done till now? Both quantitatively and qualitatively. How do we explain the two diametrically opposite energies of Gimel Tamas? On one side, it is the commun- is, it, On one side, the communist government is the, it is the communist government releasing the Friedrich Rebbe from prison, which essentially is the community getting the Friedrich Rebbe back. The Rebbe calls it Aschalte de Gaulle, because it was the beginning when the Friedrich Rebbe's sentence was commuted to exile from death penalty, and ultimately led. A little while later, just uh, nine days later, to Yud Beis Thomas, the total redemption. And on the other side, Gimel Thomas was the Rebbe being taken away from us physically. So, you talk about paradox, that's what I've been discussing. It's a paradox, yes, it's a paradox. Ultimately, we shall see how Gimel Thomas becomes Aschalte de Gaulle as well. That we do our work, we'll say, okay, it was a short pause. Yes, it's 29 years, a short pause for us to rise to the occasion, get our act together and do what we have to do. And then you could say Gimel Tamas is part of the propelling us to the Geula. But as it stands now, yes, it's an ultimate paradox. On one hand, the sun is there, but on the other hand, the sun has stopped. But it's interesting, the sun stopped and not turned night. The light continued to shine. So you also have that element, the light shining through us. And again, we shouldn't be afraid of paradoxes. Life has paradoxes, especially Jewish life, especially Jewish history. Are there any similarities to the events leading up to enduring Yud Shvat and Gimel Tammuz? And if so, can we apply some of the things the Rebbe did and taught during Yud Shvat to how we currently should act on Gimel Tammuz? I'm sure there are many similarities there are also many differences. There, the Rebbe was the Mamal Mokim and continued the Friedrich Rebbe. Now, we don't have that aspect of it. And that's also part of God's plan. But as far as the Rebbe speaking about the Nitzchis, if you read the Sichas of 1950, 51, Tavshin Yud, Yud especially then, earlier years, and always the message, but then especially, you see by the Rebbe, everything is only stronger Exactly all those questions that were asked, that we asked now, the Rebbe said, now we have to continue. Now I understand, there the Rebbe was there. That made it easier. But the principle is still the same. The Nitzchis, Le Yazib say that the shepherd doesn't forsake his flock, and we see the Kachis, and if you open your eyes and you look closely, you see the Rebbe working and only growing. So we can apply all of that to now with the qualifications that there are some differences. So the answer is absolutely yes. So it's a source of strength to read those sikhs and see how the Rebbe dealt with the aftermath of Yuchvat to be able to understand how it is today as well. With the, with, the, with the expressed challenge that today we don't have a physical Rebbe like the, we did have. We have a Rebbe, but it's not in a way that we can see with Ene Basa, with our flesh, eyes of flesh. There are many times in the Torah where Meshach Rabbeinu protests against Hashem and says, if you don't forgive the people, then blot my name out of your book. Well, it's not many times. That's once when Meshach said it, when the Eden, after the Chet Egel, after they built the golden calf, and he was praying to God for forgiveness, that's what he said, So, we have a legal precedent that we are allowed to protest Hashem when something seems unfair. Gimel Tammuz is unfair. What can we do to protest and demand Hashem return the Rebetos and send Mashiach as we have been promised? 
Well, if someone has that power of Moshe to go up for the heavenly throne and besiege God um, and do everything possible for God to re- reverse the process, meaning to send the Rebbe to bring Mashiach, by all means. But the way we do it is we learn from Moshe. Moshe went up there, wasn't just beseeching, he was praying, he was davening, doing tshuva, saying that the Idn will do tshuva. In our case, it's doing what we were told to do. Go back to what I said earlier. We were giving marching orders. Even if the Rebbe never said the Sikh of Chavches Nisan, this still would be, we gave plenty, plenty of directives, besides Purim Tav Shemem Zayin, of what we need to do. But especially once you have a Sikh like Chavches Nisan, where he says clearly, I'm giving you a job. And maybe one, two, or three of you will come together and to get my eats how to do, what to do. And to cry out Mosai with Anemis and all the other things that Rebbe said, to get out of the Golas Panimi, the internal Golas and displacement and dissonance. So we have clear directive. So that would be the equivalent of Moshe standing before Hashem and beseeching God. And yes, so we don't just protest. We don't walk around with placards and make a strike. On the contrary, our protest comes with deeper Aveda, with more work, with more commitment and more passion. That's what Kav Yochel melts God's heart. That's what ultimately Moshe was able to accomplish. He was able to reach. Now it's Kav Yochel, because obviously the Ebrist is beyond that type of language. But if you want to reach someone that you love, you have to do something about it. So it's the actions that we do more than anything. It's not the protest alone. Yes, the crying out Mosai, but it's the actions that we show that we're living up to what's expected of us. And beyond that, that's what in turn creates the midi connected midi. The action, reaction, the cause and effect to ultimately bring the goal. Okay. Since another question came in by Zhuachah Pratis, it may be relevant to this conversation about darkness. Is darkness a creation of Hashem? Or is it just a lack of light or absence of light? Because if darkness is a creation, why does the Torah say Hashem said, let there be light? But it doesn't say before creating light, He said, let there be darkness. Okay. So indeed, there are actually two opinions on this matter. This brings two opinions. I'm going to quote how the Rebbe cites it in Ha'ara in a footnote. You know, the Rebbe, the time of the Friedrich Rebbe was publishing the Friedrich Rebbe's Maimorim, but he added footnotes as he says, I'll be Pekudas, I'll be the Rebbe's, Friedrich Rebbe's um, command, he added footnotes. So I'm looking at the Maimor, Yud Beis Tam was actually Tov Shin Ches, Zayim Osa Hashem Nagilah Benismachaboy. So right in the beginning, footnote two, the Rebbe brings, the, the Maimor says, that the Maimer says, Darkness is also creation, not just the absence of light alone. So the Rebbe says, there are two opinions about Cheshach. Is it only Hedra Eir, or is it a Bria Bifniatzme? About Emes, the Rebbe says, the truth is, it's like the second opinion. And deeper, the Rebbe says, the truth is that they're not even two different opinions. The second opinion does not disagree with the first one. It only adds to it. And the Rebbe brings from Tzadikei, Maimer Vayikach Hashem Alekim, Tzadikei. And he brings also how it is in Seydish Talsus and Aveda. I'm just summing up this, uh, this uh, Ha'ara. Brings a Shari Eira. Then he brings sources for both opinions. First the second opinion, and then the first opinion. And that's the footnote. But so let's explain it a bit, because it's a very fascinating question, of course. Because it does say, Vayemir al-Kimi hi oir, oir is the creation. But let's not forget, before that, there's a postage that says, V'cheshach al-Paneya Tehem. That darkness covered all of existence. So though it doesn't say, Yehir Cheshach, darkness, that was the state, that was the, that was the, so-called uh, the natural state, the status quo. 
in the language of Chassidus because they wish to create that Tzimtzum. Created a Tzimtzum. Simpson is not just a lack of light, it's a creation of the Kech of the Ebrister to create Simpson. Kech had Simpson. Hein Heng Vuresov. His power to, to be Mitzamsim, to conceal. Sometimes connected to Kech Hagvul, but definitely the Kech Ha'elam. And then there's the Kech Hagili, the Kav that comes after the Simpson, the Ur that comes after the Simpson. So why doesn't it say Vayivra that he created Cheshach? So one of the explanations is because creation is a positive force. The force of expression. Cheshech is a withholding force. So though it is a creation, but the way it creates is not through expression. And Bria also has that, it connotes the concept of Gilui. Another point is because the Cheshech is not a, a dark, darkness is not an end in itself. Chesidus brings Cheshech, the Tzimtzum is Heipacharotz, that's not the intention. It's a means to an end. Simpson b'shvil ha'gilui. Concealment in order to bring gilui. As Chassidus explains at length. And that's why we say, every memayrev, we say, Yetzir Eir u'beidah cheshech. Yetzir Eir, because Eir is Yitzir. And cheshech is bara, bara is b'riya, is like a, um, it's well, b'riya is like a, is a, is a, is a yechimer, without a tzura. Doesn't yet have shape and form, it's not gili. So even though I just said Bria in general is gili, when you break it down, Barachesh, Yetzir Eir. Yetzirah, shape and form. And the two levels that I was talking about is sometimes Cheshach is only the absence of light. And that's why when you bring light in, automatically, as the Alter Rebbe brings in chapter 12 in Tanya, automatically dispels darkness. But then there's Vayomash Chesha. There's a level of Chesha where you see a dark, a darkness that's tangible. It's actually a creation. There you need more strength. And that's why you can have the concept of Yishapcha Chashech al Because according to the first opinion, it's not really transforming darkness to light. It's bringing light and automatically darkness gets dispelled. It's not a transformation. But if Chesha is substance, at Simpson, Hein Heng Veresev, and the Kalim, like he says in Tanya, in the end of chapter 4, Shai Yechud Vamuna, that Simpson Nikre Kalim, and the Rebbe explains in a famous Sikha, Mishpotim Tavshar Chavzayin, Simpson Nikre Kalim, so it's Kalim, it's a Metzias, that you could transform that. They each have something the other doesn't have in order to understand. So when it comes to Gimel Tammuz, on one hand it's a Choshech, a real Choshech, a tangible one. On the other hand, you could say it's absence of light, meaning that if we do what we have to do, we, will, we can bring the light in and ultimately transform even the substance, so to speak, of the darkness. It's a famous story. The Rebbe brings a story of one of the chassidim of the Tzamech Tzedek who was once came to hear a mimer from the Tzamech Tzedek. The room was packed. So he had nowhere to stand. The only place he could stand was between the lamp and the Rebbe. He didn't want to stand there because his shadow, he didn't want to cast his shadow on the Rebbe. But he ended up being there and the Rebbe, middle of the Maimah, says, says, you can't, you can't, then he, I should add one more point. Then the Chassid said, you know what, let the Rebbe be my Chayshech, my shadow. And that's what he was thinking. The Rebbe, that's Simon Sadiq, middle of the Maimah says, Chayshech is Hedra'er. You can't be my Chayshech, because it's only the absence of light. So that clearly, by this Chassid, it was only the absence of light. It wasn't a substance thing. But he that's an interesting story that we could bring into this whole discussion. Okay. Let's now move to Pasha Kedach. So here's the question. Let's address a bunch of questions that came in. Let me see. We'll cover these questions. What is the primary lesson we learn from Kedach's rebellion? So we know Vayikach Kedach, Vispali Kedach, as the Targum says, that Kedach rebelled, mutineered against Moshe. Ba'ikach, from the word challenging. He came with his 250 men to challenge Moshe. And one of the tragic stories ends up being one that leads to uh, the loss of Kedach, the death of Kedach, and his cohorts. And what was the challenge? 
it seems like a challenge that makes sense. He says, The entire community are holy. So, Why did you lift yourself up higher than others? All the Eden are equal. You actually don't find, seem to find an answer in the Parashatis. But Moshe took this as a serious challenge. Turned to Hashem, he fell on his face in humility. Then Hashem, through a process of events, proved that he did choose Moshe and Adam. So the first thing that we see here is, yes, there's no question, everybody's holy. But what, what Kedach was challenging was the very hierarchy, the very concept that we need to have is leaders, a Rebbe, teachers. Everyone's, why do we need teachers if every nisham is a chelik elikam and ma'amamish? Because we have to access that chelik elikam and ma'amamish. And we all have our subjective impediments that block us from going there. So yes, la'asid lavi, it says, one person will not teach another. Because everyone will know from young to old. But that was not lost love yet. And Chesidus explains that Kedach's mistake, he was not talking about, the, he was thinking about the future, but we're not the future right now. We need to have that structure. And even Mashiach comes and says, Mashiach will we'll teach everyone. That's not for now to discuss. So Kedah's grave error was that he thought that he wanted to be a leader. So even though he used but he also understood the need for leadership. And he thought that Mesha's leadership was coming from Mesha wanted to be a leader. It's the exact opposite. This is from the Baal Shem Tov. Mesha didn't want to be a leader. Kedah projected. So Kedah, yes, it says he was the Helik Tzadik, the Helik Zedek Kedah, the Shpola Zayda said about, about Kedach. He had a lot of, he was a pikachoy, he was an intelligent man, great qualities, but he made a grave error. So the lesson to us is the need for a Rebbe, which brings me to the next question. Does it have a connection with Gimel Thomas? Absolutely. Gimel Thomas happened with Tzoyah Shabbos, Pasha Kedach. Kedach challenged the very concept of a Rebbe. Gimel Thomas also challenges the concept. And our answer is, no, you need a Rebbe more than ever. I, Gimel Tamas, I, there's a challenge. That's the concealment that we've been discussing. And we have to overcome it, as the Pasha teaches us, how we overcome this challenge. And Kedek was absolutely wrong. So someone asked another question. Was the story in Tav Shem Mem Hei Mem Zayin about the stealing of the books and challenging the Rebbe's leadership, a modern-day parallel to the story of Kedach challenging Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership. I don't know if I'd go that far, even though they do say that the Rebbe said at the time, I'm a Vilda Benkel. I don't know if there was an actual intention by somebody to want to become Rebbe. They were challenging the concept that the Rebbe continues. The Rebbe said that clearly, you'd base Thomas and Tezvah of Thomas, Tov Shemem, hey, said they want to make another, God forbid, Leviah. And saying that the farther we get from Tov Shin Yud, when the Friedrich Rebbe was nostalgic, the less connected we are. The farther it is, because like it ended then. There was that thinking. So in that way, there is a parallel. I don't want to compare it to Kedah, because uh, for many reasons. The concept, absolutely. And the Rebbe's answer was that it's even more active and even more involved and that's why the Rebbe was so emphasizing that we have to show and demonstrate the learning of the Svarim, the applying it to life and all of that because that was the challenge. So in that sense, there is a somewhat of a parallel, especially in the result of the answer. Okay. Next question. Was Kedach's argument that everyone is equal the seed of the idea of socialism? Even though Kedach had a valid idea, but he messed up its application, probably because he was blinded by his jealousy of Moshe and Aaron, are there still any possible lessons we can learn from his arguments? Okay. 
Well, let's start with the Soslim. I actually wrote an article about this, an essay, that you could find certain parallels. And I should read another question, which really will, will address this as well. Hi, Rabbi Jacobs. And I guess this is more of a comment than a question. But in Pasha's Kedach, I see a strong similarity between Kedach and communist leaders. Both come with a cry of unity and equality. Regarding Kedach, see Lukut Esichas, volume 18, page 204. And nevertheless are demanding to be in a leadership role. Engel wanted to break up the family structure and wanted to push gender equality. But in the end, Marx decided not to include it, as he thought it was too radical to include in his treatise. treatise. So too, Kedach wanted there to be no difference between Kahanim, Levim, and Yisraelim, and no difference between the leaders and water carriers, very Orwellian. Am I reading the story of Kedach correctly? So let's first address this, and then I'll go back to are there lessons to be learned. So I wrote about this in an essay called Money and Spirituality. You can look it up at MeaningfulLife.com, where socialism, which argues against private property and against, against individual gain and profiteering and so on, but everything should be in a collective has a similarity. There's no question there's a similarity between Kedach and that. Was it the root that they took it from? I'm not sure. I can't say that. But there is a similarity. Obviously, with the, with the qualifications, Kedach was coming, so to speak, from a Torah perspective. I don't know if they're coming from a Torah perspective. But at the end of the day, Judaism is not socialism. Because private property is absolutely a part of Torah. Only the Levim, only Shevet Levi doesn't have private property. Interestingly, um, because of their bitl, so Moshe, Adam, Kerach included, these are all Levim. So the concept of socialism is not the concept of being charitable and giving and, and, uh, and, uh, and civil, uh, civil rights and justice and social justice, I should say, and charity, absolutely. So I wrote there the whole thing whether Judaism goes by capitalism or socialism. But there are certain elements, especially calling everybody equal. As the Rebbe writes in a letter, in the name of socialism and Marxism and communism, more abuse of individual power than anything that ever happened in capitalism. Ironically, those that called for this equality, but then who's going to be the steward of this equality? And they abuse that power more than anybody. So it's not so simple. You don't trust any individual. Moshe Rabbeinu was the Ebrishter's person. He was Isha Lekim. Complete bitl, the honor of the ultimately humblest person. So he could serve as God's servant. But not someone that's really driven by ego and doesn't have, those, doesn't have that bitl and Kabbalah sale. So in that sense, Kedach was absolutely wrong, as socialism proved to be wrong. And just as we need to have the unity, we're all equal, that's true. But we also need to know that there's a teacher and there's a person who, who's a parent and there's a hierarchy. Not a hierarchy of power per se, but a hierarchy of respect, of recognizing. So even though we talk to say that David Nesava, he desired to have a home, did it but we call it tachtenim, we don't call it alienim. And there's, there's a world of Asiya and a world of Yetzirah and a world of Bria and a world of Atsilas. Because the process of growth, it would be like a as soon as we're born, as soon as we're conceived. Or definitely as soon as we're born. So you're going to say a newborn child is just like a Moshe Rabbein. Yeah, in one sense, everyone's equal. We all come from one Eberster. But a child has to first start learning. And that was lacking in the concept when you deal with Kedach's argument or socialist argument. Okay. Now, as far as the other side, even though it's a valid idea and he messed up, are there any positive lessons we can learn from his arguments? So the Rebbe actually has a fascinating sikha. I believe it's Kedach Tavshin Nun Aleph, or maybe Nun, Tavshin Nun Aleph, I think, where he talks about, seemingly, strange thing, the Rambam brings the end of Hilcha Shemitah V'yevo, Leishevet Levi Bulvad, they're not Shevet Levi alone, but call Ish Ve'ish Meboy Elam, every person, including non-Jews, who dedicates their life and separates themselves from the materialism of this world 
from the nonsense, the pettiness of this world, and dedicates his life to God, he becomes sanctified in the sanctity of Holy of Holies. And he brings Psukim from Kedach. Now Kedach came to argue that everybody is holy. So how's the Rambam bringing Psukim from Kedach, who was rejected, to demonstrate that every person could be a Kohen Gadol, like a Kohen Gadol? Wasn't that Kedach's Taina? And the Rebbe's answer, because Kedach's intention was correct, every person should strive to be Kedush Kedoshim. But his, his, in other words, that part is correct. But his intention was that he should be the person. His intention was wrong. So let me rephrase what I said. His intention was right in the sense of everybody should be that, but not in the way that Kedach wanted. Kedach was doing it in a way that he should be the Godl. It was not coming from Bittl, in other words. The Ram is talking from Bittl. So you see, in Kedach's words, there are correct points. Kola Eidah is a correct statement. The Maduat Tisnasu is the problem. But Kol Eidigdashim is absolutely right. So there are things we can learn out from Kedach, as the Rambam learns in the end of Hilchah Shemitah So we should aspire to that level, but that doesn't mean that you are a Kohen Gadol and it's about you. It's aspiring to the Gedusha of that through Bittl, as the Rebbe explains in that Sicha. Okay. Next question. The sons of Kedach. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. What does it mean that the children of Kedach did not die, as we read in the next week's Pasha? So he says like this. It says, That the earth, the earth opened up and swallowed them all. And everyone that belonged to Kedach. And the next verse it says, So, we know that this is connected in Pasha Pinchas, where he talks about the Bnei Kedach Mesu, that the word is that Rashi explains. What does it mean they didn't die when here it says that they were all swallowed up? So it says, because even though they initially came to challenge Moshe, they were part of Kedach, the Edosei Kedach's cohorts. But during the time of the controversy, they were, they were initially, they were initially part of the council of, of Kedach, but during the time of the controversy, they were aroused to tshuva in their hearts. Therefore, a high place was fortified for them. This is Rashi. In Gehenim, and they resided there. Thus, they were swallowed up and lost from the congregation, but didn't die. That's what Rashi says. The Rebbe explains this in the Sikha. This person is writing in the Lukut Sikha, volume 35. So he asks the question, the questioner is asking, needless to say, this is quite difficult to understand. Is Gehenim a physical place where somewhere in the center of the earth where they, con- where they, are, they continue to live? Based on the Rebbe Sikha, an additional layer of complexity is added because the Rebbe explains that they were only lost from the community, but afterwards they were there was no need to keep them in Gehenim, and thus it seems that they came back to earth. Can you explain what is going on here? Did they take a journey to the center of the earth and return decades later? And to add to that, the source of this brings that actually someone once showed one of the sages that here's a place where smoke is coming from the earth, and that's where the children of Kedach were. So as far as the physical thing, let's make this clear. Gehenim Bechlal is a spiritual state, just like Gan Eden is. But the physical earth did, did open up. So you could say that even on a physical level, it was a miracle. The very earth opening up is also a miracle. That the physical earth opened up and there was a space for them. Everything in the physical world parallels and mirrors the spiritual. So though Gehenim can be seen, is seen as a spiritual thing, there could also be a Gehenim on earth. You know, being swallowed up on earth and being living there is not necessarily very pleasant. They didn't die. 
So you could say there was the so-called physical counterpart to Gehenim on earth. That would be the most basic explanation. And yes, it is a miracle, that's for sure. The point, however, is, the question is how much damage was done, so to speak. Those that were died in this Magefa and everything that happened then was because they didn't do tshuva. And they defied the very source of life, and that's why they could no longer live in this world. What you want to learn about B'nai Kedach is that even though they initially were part of this mutiny, but tshuva helps. And ultimately, you can be redeemed and even redeemed on earth. So it's not a far cry to say, yes, that, pos- that initially they, they were swallowed, but then they came back to live and continued to live. But the most important thing is the lesson to us that there's always hope, which is the real underlying theme in that particular sikh. Okay. Next question. What is the significance of overlaying the altar with the copper pans brought by the 250 men with Kedach who offered incense and died? And how does that contrast with the copper mirrors of the women used to make the kir, the water basin? Here to write, to read out the full question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your weekly My Life Citizen Supplied broadcast. My question is from Pastor Kedach. We are taught that those 250 who brought incense died, and their pans, now holy, were used as a covering for the copper altar. Separately, we are taught that the copper mirrors that women donated were used for the kir, wash basin. Does Chassidus teach a specific reason why each were used for what they were used for? In other words, why weren't the women's mirrors used for the copper altar and the pans of Kedach followers used for the kir? Okay, I've not seen that, that comparison, even though I'll do some more research. And if anybody does have anything on that, please share that with me and I'll share it with the audience. But I will say this. You see in both cases the taking something that could have initially been negative and be used for something positive. But it's very, very different. The 250 people with Kairach, they were incinerated, unfortunately, consumed by the fire when they brought that incense. And even then, to remind the Eden what happened when you rebel against Moshe, you didn't just eliminate and destroy these pans that they brought, that they were used as an overlay for the, for the Mizbech to remind the Eden of what happened here. So there's something redeeming. It's like you learn from them. You learn from their mistake. And that's most likely why it's on the altar, because the altar was brought as the carbonus for, what do you do a carbon? A carbon is offered for tshuva. It's connected to tshuva. So what better place to remind them is on the the Mizbeach. With the women, the Havamina was that women who use copper mirrors seems to be for their own vanity. You're going to use that to build the kir, the copper water wash basin. So Abraham says, no, this is more dear to me than anything else because it's these women and their intimacy and connection with their husbands, which these mirrors are used for, that preserve the Jewish people. And that's why Dafki used this. So there... It was only a consideration that it was vanity, but the truth is that itself was a positive. And of course, the women were not sinned in any way, not like the 250 men with Kedach. So where do you use that to wash, to cleanse, to purify the Kahanim before they go to their service in the Beis Amigdash? That seems to be the obvious distinction. Is there more on this, perhaps? I would need to look it up, but that would be the basic explanation. But since we're talking about the 250, does the Torah imply that the sons of Kairach did shuva after staging a mutiny against Moshe and survived being swallowed up by a chasm in the earth, but some others in the group of 250 troublemakers were killed? So the answer is yes, this, that's clearly the Pasuk. We just said that. The sons of Kairach, Lay Mesu, the 250 were consumed. Are there any further explanations of what really happened in this situation and why the sons of Kairach were given the chance to do tshuva but in other situations, people who made mistakes were not given the chance to do tshuva, such as the mapilim 
who regretted that they listened to the Meraglim, to the Meraglim's lie, and say we don't have the ability to conquer the land. Everybody's given the possibility to do tshuva. But you have to do it in time. When the marble began, it's Rashi says, it first began as raindrops, the flood, in order to give them opportunity to do tshuva. Once they didn't do tshuva, they were given ample warning and ample time, that's when it became a flood. So time is very important. Now why some people are given more time than other time? That's already another discussion. Obviously different people have different merits or it's maybe the level of their sin, their intentions. But tshuva is always possible. And even when it says about people that died without tshuva, uh, first of all you have like Rabbi Elizabeth ben all his life sinned in every possible way, then the last minute he did tshuva and he was in one hour, in one moment, in one turn, one shift, he earned his right for the world to come. But even somebody who passes away without tshuva, even there, there's a concept of Gilgal reincarnation. And even when it says, by those people, so sometimes the explanation is because they're higher than Elam Haba, and sometimes it will means that they in that suda, in that shape and form, will not have Elam Haba, but their neshama always lives on. This is a long, another discussion, a long discussion, which I believe I once addressed and definitely wrote about, which you can find on our website, meaningfullife.com. So clearly the sons of Kedach did Shuv in right time. Had they waited too long, probably it wouldn't have worked. And Shuv is, of course, an extremely powerful tool to reverse any type of so-called retribution. Okay. Someone asks the question, what does Chassidus say is the difference in the style of Aveda of the Ovis and Kedach. I'm reading the question for the public. I have not seen that, that spoken about the Ovis and Kedach. I mean, it talks about Kedach's Yichus and his uh, pedigree, and, and his Yichus meaning his uh, ancestry, I should say, uh, where he originated from. But um, the difference, of course, Kedach uh, sinned at the end of the day, and the Ovis were Hein and Markova. But maybe they're referring to some medrash or something that's discussed. If anybody has any information on that, please share. One more final question on the Parsha. Does it say anywhere in the Torah that what Adam did with the almonds that grew on his rod? They would probably make a great snack while hiking through the desert. Or are these almonds not really physical almonds, but some spiritual representation of what an almond represents? So they were not just a spiritual representation, even though they had spiritual meaning. Why dafka almonds and so on? But Rashi says actually kipshute, meaning literally, kemashmoi, kipshute, that actually the, the rod sprouted almonds. That was a sign that Hashem chose Adam. So the Mepharshim explained why almonds, the speed of their growth. But it does continue to say that that rod was then taken and placed in Mishmeres forever, in the Edus, in the, in the, in the Mishkan, to remember that everyone should remember that Hashem chose Adon Abonov, that Hashem chose Adon to be the Kayin Gadol and his children to be Kahanim. So you see it was preserved. And most likely at that point, if it's in the Mishkan, it's not something that people could just eat from. So the almonds were preserved because it wasn't just the rod, it was what they sprouted. That's the most likely fact. Now where it ended up going, well, we also have the man, the Zosel Mishmedas, there were things that were put away that were there forever. And then when everything disappeared, either it's concealed somewhere or it's, in the, or it's hidden somewhere or the Abishta is watching it till Mashiach comes. But there are things that it says the Mishmedes were put aside forever to always remember the different miracles that it represents or the different lessons it taught us. Okay. Let's conclude with some follow-up. We'll do a follow-up on Baaloischa and Ashlach. So quickly... Jacobson, I read your essay on Pastors Baalescha per your Thursday listing on your weekly program schedule. As a result, I would like to make one comment and ask one question, please. The, comments, the comment is that 
The essay enables one to have a printed, meaningful life text to read on Shabbos. I highly recommend the use of this format of the printed essay to enrich Shabbos as a in a meaningful way. I would be remiss if I did not express my akara satev, my thank you, my appreciation to you for providing your audience with an excellent means to fulfill the Chabad dictum of Leben mit der Zeit, to live with a parsha, with the time. My question concerns the use of light as a symbol to understand Hashem. Specifically, you write, light reflects and is drawn to the divine. Thus begging the question, how can light be drawn down into creation when its personality is to ascend upward, like a flame that expires without a grounding wick? Please explain upward-downward idea of light. Please explain this upward-downward idea of light as it relates to an understanding of Hashem. Thank you. So, there's the verse in the Cheskel in Ezekiel where he says, V'achayis rotsi v'shuv. So he's talking about the vision of Yecheskel. He's talking about the angels, the chariot, the Merkava. Vachais. Chais can refer to the angels called Chais HaKadosh. Chais also refers to energy. Divine energy. Rotse v'shuv. Rotse means runs and returns. To and fro. You see a lightning, like a lightning bolt. A, a positive and negative. Because energy is driven by these two poles. Tension and resolution. So Chassidus explains at length in many places that the way the divine energy flows into existence isn't just a direct flow. It's Ratzi V'shuv. It enters and returns like a pump, like a heart beating. Contraction, expansion. Exhale, inhale. That allows there to be constant renewal of the energy. It's not just a flow. It goes back, returns. Like think of sleep. Neshama during sleep gets re-energized. So Neshama goes back to Ganeden to drink from the waters to revitalize it. So it's a constant process. Life is a constant process of returning to the well, to the mouth of the well, refreshing and then bringing it back, like the blood. The blood returns to the heart and then it expands and pumps the blood and therefore the blood gets, gets it's like a pump, contraction and expansion to cause the blood to constantly flow and refresh and reinvigorate and so on. And there are other explanations as well of why the Ratzi Veshuv. So in the context of Aveda, the same is with Aveda. Yearning, longing to the divine, reaching upward, but then integrating and internalizing it. So we all need to have a measure of angst, a certain restlessness, like a flame, like a flame that flickers, reaches upward, but not to the point of expiration, but then you draw it down. So it's a constant process of tension and resolution, of longing and integration. That's in brief. Regarding Shlach, why did everyone get punished because of the Miraglim and have to delay entering Israel for 40 years? If those 10 spies did something wrong, let alone, let, let only them be accountable for their actions. And if we are held accountable for the actions of others, then by logic, we should also be rewarded if 10 people do something positive. And as a result, we should all deserve to have Mashiach come 40 years earlier than planned. Amen. Well, the answer is because it wasn't the Maraglim were the insiders. They instigated. But the whole nation began to cry. They were all affected by it. And they had basically, they all then participated in challenging God's promised land. I promised you the land. Why are you crying? Why are you feeling resigned? Why are you feeling weak? So they all participated, unfortunately, in this. And that's why they all died in the Midbar. They said, we can't, we can't go into the land of Israel. Hashem says, okay, you won't go in. Your children will go in. Except, of course, Kolov and Yeshua. As far as positive people do things, if you're part of it, for sure you're part of the reward. If you're saying people do positive things and other people benefit, by all means. Other people do wrong things. Other people don't necessarily suffer, but there could be suffering. There could be consequences because people can hurt and create an environment that can also be hurtful and toxic for others. But in this case, they were participating, unfortunately. Why did Yeshua have to send two spies into Jericho if 40 years earlier spies were already sent by Moshe and Yeshua was one of them? Didn't Yeshua already know what was going on in Israel and how the best way to conquer it was? So we read in the Haftar of Shlach, indeed, that Yeshua sent the spies. An additional question is, once he saw what happened to the spies, in this case, that they so fell, why was he ready to take the risk? So the Rebbe explains, beautiful answer, 
The idea of sending the spy, shlach lecha, even though it was ladaitacha, Hashem told Moshe, do it at your volition. The concept, as the Ramban explains, is very important. Because God says, I'm sending you, go to the promised land, but you have to do your part, ladaitacha, to figure out the best way to enter the land. When God blesses you, have parnosa. We don't just sit around, we make a keli. So the keli they made was to send scouts and check out where's the best way to enter, where are the weak points, where are the strong points, the strongholds, and so on. So Yeshua did the same thing. The fact that those, the, Maragim, the ten Maragim sinned, that was their choice. But not the, the very idea of scouting out. That's what we always need, need to do. That's why he sent. The fact is, since it was 40, year, well, 40 years later, things could have changed in Israel. So he sent scouts again. He learned from Moshe. This time he sent two scouts. So of course Yeshua did personally witness and scout out the land, but 40 years later, maybe there's changes in the strongholds and what happened to the people and so on in Israel. So before going, they did one more keli to make another, which you see always in a war, you'll send scouts more than once, and you know, even in less than 40 years, let alone in 40 years. Okay, with that, let us conclude. But episode 454 of My Life Citizen Applied. May we do our work that even before this Thursday, Gimel Tammuz should be transformed in Taschalta de Gula and Gula Hamitis Vashlema, reunited with the Rebbe, and most importantly, showing that we did do our part. We did our part in opening our eyes and opening other people's eyes and teaching Siddhis, making it tangible, making it real, irrelevant, making it personal. In a way, applying this in a way that transforms each of our lives the best way possible, our own homes, our families, our communities, and by extension to the entire world. Everyone be well. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much.